Open with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 6. Like I said at the front of the sermon or the front of the service today, we've been working through the book of Acts with an eye toward what it looks like when Christ says he will build his church. If Christ is going to build his church, and if the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it, then that is going to look like something particular. And as you go through the book of Acts, particularly the opening chapters of the book of Acts, you are given these characteristics that define the church. Not just the church in a time and in a place, but the church from the beginning until Christ comes back to collect his church. The church is the people of God indwelt by the Spirit. We saw that the church is the people of God enabled to do the work that God has called them to do through the gifts and the calling and the power of the Holy Spirit. For the last two weeks, Walter has done a wonderful job of taking you through the idea that the church is marked by boldness, even in persecution, and by a real genuine generosity that seeks to meet the needs of others, even at the expense of self and our own possessions. And today, as we come into Acts chapter 6, we're going to see how the church, in a very brief way, looks with regard to her leadership. So if you're not there already, find your way to Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is what God's Word says. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Lord, we open your word because it's in your word that we find truth. It's in your word that we find what is true about you and what is true about us and how we are called to respond to you, the great God of all creation. So, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We bring blindness, we bring darkness, we bring sin, we bring confusion. Lord, bring the clarity that only your word can provide. And then through the power of your spirit, help us to live lives that are worthy of our calling. Help us to live lives of settled, humble obedience to what you have called us to be and do. And Lord, we need your help to do all of that. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen. Talking about leadership can be a tricky thing. Maybe in some ways because everybody has their own ideal for what the perfect leader looks like. Uh, Even from Christian denomination to denomination, we get different pictures of what leadership ought to look like. In some places, any kind of structured leadership is seen as a bad thing. Uh, There's the potential for corruption and tyranny, and so because every believer is indwelt by the Spirit, then every believer ought to have an equal part in the decision-making and guidance of the church. And then sometimes we see the other extreme in other denominations where decisions are made either by a very select few, maybe even by one person who has control over the whole thing, or everything is so structured and so organized and so businesslike that every decision gets its own committee, its own subcommittee, its own reporting committee, and its own titled officers. And somewhere in all of that, we're left with trying to find the biblical picture of what church leadership looks like. And I'm convinced that while structure is important and that God does say something about the leadership structure of his church, 
The far more important but far more often neglected element of church leadership is the character and calling of those who are entrusted with church leadership. Because this is Christ's church. That's the crux of all of this. The church does not belong to a pastor. The church does not belong to a board, whether that's elders, deacons, advisors, whatever you want to call it. The church does not even belong to the congregation. The church belongs to Christ who died to purchase it, who gave his life so that we might have eternal life. The church has one chief shepherd, and then there are those who are called to serve as under-shepherds for the great shepherd. And the newly formed church here in Acts is about to encounter a very particular problem. And it's a problem that's going to test them in ways that they haven't been tested yet. And within the scope of that problem that is made very clear in the opening verses, the first thing that we're going to see is that there's context that Luke gives us. Now, in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, these are very particular days, and when we ask what days, it might seem pretty obvious. We're in the beginning chapters of Acts, so obviously those days are the beginning days of the church. But we have to remember and be grounded in the fact that something fairly remarkable is taking place on a pretty continual basis here. We've moved from the disciples praying in obedience in that upper room, praying and waiting, as Christ told them to, to this remarkable filling with the Spirit. And as they're filled with the Spirit, they speak in languages that are known to those that are around them. And although there are thousands gathered to celebrate the feast, each one hears them preach the gospel in their own language, and people are saved. And the church goes from zero to 3,000 in a moment, and this church explodes into existence. And it's a remarkable thing. And then we see that Peter preaches, and again, people are saved. This church that's born is united around these common things. And that was one of the things that we saw in Acts chapter 2. They devote themselves to the same things. This church that is born, that explodes into existence, unites itself around these core principles. And so not only do you have a church that is remarkable in its size, you have a church that's remarkable in its unity. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 4, verse 4, we read that the number of men came to about 5,000. That's men only. That doesn't include women and children. And so you could have a church that's in upwards of 20,000 people maybe by this point. Can you imagine going from nothing to 20,000 in a matter of weeks, months? The rulers and the elders and the scribes charge them not to speak, not to preach any longer. But of course they do. They pray. They praise they ask for boldness. The Spirit's poured out. They preach boldly again. We saw that the church is marked by their sharing of possessions, that where those that have need, that need is met by the generosity of those who have. And by the time we get to Acts, we've seen potential problems from persecution, from false generosity, and we've seen God's hand work marvelously in these things. And so you have this church that's been tested and strengthened, and it's growing and it's thriving. Um, but the church has a very real enemy, and he's not done yet. The deception that threatened the church came from the inside, but this is a different kind of internal struggle that's going to happen here. Look at verse 1. In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The context now gives way to a very particular complaint here. Because although persecution failed to destroy and hinder the church, and that false generosity, that sin within the body failed to destroy or disunify the church, now uh, Satan is going to take a different tactic. 
Now he is going to test their unity on regards to these nationalistic lines. There's some things in there that we might not be all that familiar with. The idea of Hebrews and Hellenists. Remember where we are. We're in Jerusalem. This has all begun at the Feast of Pentecost where Jews from all over the known world would be called back to Jerusalem to celebrate that feast. And Hellenists deals with the idea of the Greek-speaking peoples. And it's not that they were only from Greece, but that they were from the part of the world that is influenced by Greece, which, if you're a good-thinking Jew, is basically everybody but you. So you have this potential division between the Jews who were Jews because they stayed in Israel and the everybody else. And how that works itself out practically is there's this daily distribution of food that has to go on. Remember, uh, you have gone from whatever home you knew to finding Christ here in Jerusalem, and a great number of these people stayed. Many of those that are gathered now have a new home. They have a new church. They have this new family that they've built around, but they have no foundation there, and so there's great need. And these needs, we're told, are being met by the generosity of the people. As they see a need, that need is filled. People bring their food, or they bring their possessions. They bring whatever profits they have to the feet of the apostles, and they're distributed as needed. But now in this distribution, it appears that something's not working. Uh, whether it's an oversight or whether it's an intentional thing, that the danger is real, that some people think that they're not being treated fairly. And that is a tremendous danger to the church. Uh, In many ways, more dangerous than persecution that comes from the outside that tends to solidify. Now you have something that threatens to fracture the unity of the church. And if you fracture the unity of the church, you make it impossible for the church to continue on its mission. If you make enemies between one another in the body, then you make it impossible for the church to make disciples as they are called to do. And when the church is faced with this internal crisis, we're given a picture of effective spiritual leadership. This is an opportunity for the Lord's people to respond to something that has arisen within their midst, and the apostles respond uh, not by creating a program, but by recognizing first their priorities. So we go from a problem to the priorities. So we think of church leadership as being driven by any number of things, but one of the things that you and I need to be convinced and convicted of is that those who would lead the church are able to mark out what the real priorities of ministry are. And they fall around two central things, and that is prayer and preaching. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. And the first priority of church leadership is prayer. Look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, and they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, make sure you understand that they are not saying it's a bad thing to serve tables. They are not saying that this daily distribution of food is a bad thing. To look after orphans, to look after widows, to look after those in need is a biblical principle and has been since the law. This is a good and godly and necessary thing that has to happen. What they are saying is that for the apostles to do that would remove them from something that ought to take greater precedence, that ought to have a greater priority. See, the thing is, you can't do everything. And there are some of us who are tempted to want to do everything, to see a need and to move toward filling it. And what that typically is, is a very thinly veiled cover for our pride that says, if I don't do it, either it won't get done or somebody won't do it as good as I can. I don't know what's in the apostles' minds and hearts, but the temptation must certainly have been there to simply handle the situation themselves. But it would not be good for them to give up their primary duties to do these other good but secondary things. And I want you to look down to verse 4 for a moment because this is what they set the priority as. But we, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer 
and to the ministry of the word. Two priorities, and the first one is prayer. Well, why is, why is prayer a priority for those who would lead the church? Well, if you remember back in Acts 2, we talked about the church itself as a whole being gathered around certain things, and one of those corporate priorities was prayer. And the reality is that if the leadership are not individually committed to those priorities, then the body itself can't be committed to those priorities. If the body is gathered around prayer, then the leaders individually must also prioritize prayer. That's one reason, and the other is that prayer is so very necessary in the life of a believer. Prayer continually drives us back to the reality that we do not carry out ministry in our own strength, on our own wisdom, according to our own plans. Prayer forces me to recognize that I am in submission to someone who is greater. As often as the leader goes back to the God that he serves, he recognizes that that God has set up and established his church, has given direction to his church, has enabled the leadership of the church to do anything. Prayer is a great anchor to the humility that is required of godly leadership because leadership has the temptation in any capacity, whether that's in the church, whether that's in business, whether it's in politics, leadership has the ability to feed the pride that really sits in all of us. Give a man a position, and it's not long before he's pretty sure he's earned every bit of that position. As the apostles, as leaders today, commit themselves to prayer, they provide a safeguard for their souls and a direct connection to what actually powers their ability to do ministry, and that's the God who called them to that. And the second priority of ministry is the Word. What is the ministry of the Word? Well, if you read through the book of Acts, it's preaching. That is the consistent ministry of the, of the apostles, prayer and preaching, because the Word is what feeds and nurtures the church. The Word is preached, and people are saved. Acts chapter 2, Peter opens his mouth. He talks about what God has said, and people are saved. Acts chapter 3, Peter preaches, and the church is strengthened, and the people are saved. Chapter 4, the people pray for boldness, the Spirit falls on them, and what happens? The Word of God is spoken powerfully. Look back to the very close of chapter 5. Chapter 5 ends with this, And every day, in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. It has been this hallmark of what the church is centered around. And now, as the threat of division and potential crisis come into the church, the apostles don't leave the main things to try and troubleshoot by creating something else. They don't assume that what's needed is another program. They don't assume that what's needed is a different administrative tactic. They don't assume that they should just shut the whole program down because these widows are obnoxious anyway, and no one's going to please them no matter what they do. No. They say we need to focus on what we've been called to focus on. They recognize that the Word of God is vital to the health of God's people and always has been. And so they refuse to abandon it. And here's the reality. There's always a looming crisis in the church. Not just ours, but in any church. We're always a week away from something going really, really wrong. And that's not because of any particular shortcoming in our body or in our organization, but because we're fallen people who do ministry among fallen people in a fallen world. Even with the Holy Spirit, even with genuine love, even with the best of intentions, you and I, the best of us, the worst of us, are fallen and finite. And 
we assume sometimes that if we could only do things differently, then maybe things would get better. If only the service was structured differently, then people would come. If only the sermon was, the sermon was shorter, <laughs> then maybe people would come. If only the music was this way, the lighting was this way. If only we could meet people's felt needs by what we said. If only we made them feel more comfortable, then maybe, then maybe things would be better. Well, the reality is that people aren't saved through programs, and God's people aren't brought to maturity through programming. Can those things be helpful and effective in carrying those out? Absolutely they can. Does there need to be structure? Absolutely there does need to be. But people are saved through the ministry of the Word. People are saved not by being made comfortable, but by being made decidedly uncomfortable. People are saved when God's Word is preached and their sin is exposed for the horror that it is. When the holiness of a God who stands in judgment over the entire human race is held up and the beauty of the salvation offered through Jesus Christ is made clear. People are saved by reminding them that they can do nothing good on their own, that it's only through the work of God in Jesus Christ that they can be brought to salvation. The church is not brought to maturity by the constant encouragement that life will get better, that you have everything within you that you need to live a life of peace and joy and wholeness and satisfaction. The church is brought to maturity when that holy God of Scripture is held up, when we're brought face to face with His holiness, His majesty, His beauty, and called to respond rightly to that. You and I are brought to maturity when we are reminded that we are called to daily take up our cross, die to ourself, and live for Christ to love and serve the other, even to our own hurt and at our own cost. To live lives of mutual submission and sacrifice, to love and exhort and encourage and equip and pray for and care for one another. That's what saves people and that's what brings the body to maturity. It's the idea that the word is preached. And so here's what you do with that Chapel City Church. You demand... You demand that whoever would serve in a position of spiritual leadership in this body is committed to those same priorities, to prayer and to the ministry of the word, not to a personality, not to a gifting, not to a particular friendship or relationship, but to the same priorities that Christ has always called the leadership of his church to adhere to. And the apostles don't just leave it at that and assume that if they do their thing, the church will figure out its own thing. They provide a particular process now that will get worked through. And that process is going to recognize that God has placed unique and particular gifts in the body to carry out the ministry that he has called them to. And the first thing they're going to call for is certain men to take on this critical task, but these men are going to be of a very particular character. Look at verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. That is important because these men who are going to be called to fill this very particular role within the body are a known quantity. There is no sense where leadership in the church is limited to a few behind closed doors who are known only to themselves. Here's the principle. Those that would serve in leadership within the church are known to the church. That those who would serve as your pastor, as your elders, that you are able as a body to validate and verify their gifts and calling. 
which means that as uncomfortable as it is, although you are not entitled to every detail of my life or the lives of the elders, but it does mean that you know something about the way that I interact with my family. It means that you know something about my work ethic. It means that you know something about how I think about and interact with my financial resources. And there's a lot of people who feel called to leadership, but who really shirk at that kind of accountability. And that doesn't mean that it's always comfortable, but it does mean that the servant of God who would be called to lead the church lives his life in a way that is open before the body of Christ. And that gives way to two very specific qualifications. It says these men must be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Remember what this is. This is a call to delegate resources to people in need. A church of upwards of maybe 20,000 people trying to administrate the needs of that. This is a significant task. There's a lot of moving parts here. And I think we might think, well, when we're looking at that, how do you administrate the distribution of food, the collecting and the distribution between maybe 20,000 people, many of whom are in great need, How do we find men to fill that role? Well, let's look at their business background. Maybe they have a great organizational plan. Maybe they've worked with nonprofits before. Maybe they've worked with food distribution before. Maybe these are guys with a great personality who can smooth some of these things over. Because remember, you're dealing with people of high emotion here. If your widows are getting neglected, there's some powerful emotions happening here. This is real conflict. Maybe we need someone who's trained and called to conflict resolution to handle all this. You recognize that none of that is present in the text. They are not looking for people of a particular practical background. He says the first thing that they need to be convinced of is that these are men full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Look for those among you who are men full of the Spirit. That same Spirit that marks out all genuine believers. That same Spirit that enables everybody to serve in the manner that God has called them to. These men need to display lives that are saturated with the Spirit. How do we know? How do you know if someone is full of the Spirit? What does the Spirit produce? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You want to know what your elders ought to look like? That. Those that serve as leadership in Christ's church ought to be consistently producing the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And not only should they be full of the Spirit, but they should be full of wisdom. Not only fruitful, but wise. Men who are not just excited, but who are able to bring spiritual wisdom to practical bear on the situation. In other words, they've got to be able to do more than pass a theology test. The theology is important, but they've got to be able to marry knowledge to practice. Real wisdom has to be demonstrated here. Who should we pick as elders? Who should show up in the nominating committee meetings? Who should fill the role of our youth and family pastor? We look through 1 Timothy, we look through Titus, and there are a number of very specific qualifications, and those are absolutely critical and important. But you can boil them all down to these two things. Is the man full of the Spirit, and is he characterized by wisdom? And with those instructions, then there's a call. Look at verse 5. What they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, 
and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now two of those men, Stephen and Philip, take a much more visible role in the coming chapters, but that's really as much as we know about most of these guys, that they're filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and that's kind of the only testimony to them. Uh, But they set these men before the apostles. Remember, uh, this is not the apostles saying, go do what's right in your own eyes and don't come back to us unless there's another problem. Uh, What we have here is a really beautiful interplay of trust and submission here. The apostles say, go and choose and we will appoint. And I think we would push back against that. No, if you're going to let us choose, then let us have the final say. And again, we love to argue about church polity, church process, church procedure, and we give it names, elder-ruled, elder-led, congregational, Presbyterian, and the reality is I think there are a number of viable church leadership structures that are good and God-honoring. Whatever scandal that might create in your mind, we can talk about. But here's what all God-honoring church polity has in common humility and submission. That those who lead, lead with humility, and that those who are led do so with humble submission, not trusting in the goodness of their leaders, but trusting in the sovereignty of God. And that's what you see here. The apostles trust the people to do what they are called to do. The people trust the apostles to have the final say in how they're appointed and how they're commissioned. And what happens is they're publicly put before everyone. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and they laid hands on them. They don't bestow on them any magical powers, any special gifts. They publicly say these men are qualified to this task and set aside for this task. And you know what the result is? When godly leadership functions in a God-honoring way, the church is strengthened. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Priests, those who we would think would be the most rabid opponents of this gospel, they are coming to faith. Why? First of all, because that's the power of the gospel to change hearts, but they also see that this is a church that is functioning in a way that is healthy, that is God-honoring, that is for the glory of God and the good of his people. So who will lead the church? such a critical question. And I'm so thankful for the men that God has raised up to lead this church. I'm thankful for how they were brought into the positions that they were. You think through our board. How do we wind up with the elders that we have? Charlie Rutledge is in sales. Maybe he could help talk up the church. Mike Couchman works with a nonprofit. He should have something valuable to add to this. Wayne runs his own business. Walter's pretty diligent. He manages two ministries of the church very successfully. Greg oversees a team of employees at his work, facilitates their communication, and gets the goal accomplished. Steve, teacher, gifted writer, he could help with our communication. You know that none of that came up in the elder nominating committee? None of it. Now, in his wisdom, God uses all those things. But the question that's asked and that must continue to be asked are those who will lead this church full of the Holy Spirit and marked by their wisdom. As we close today, there's not a list of go-do's. 
go exercise your own church leadership. That's not what we're saying. But we do have a very practical need. We've been faced with the lack of a youth and family pastor for well over a year now. And the reality is that I can't do everything. Make no mistake, in my pride, I would love to think that I can. We need God to fill that role. And what we have the opportunity to do is to dedicate ourselves to prayer and submission and trust that God will do that in his time. And thank God we know exactly what kind of man we ought to be praying for. So I'm going to call Steve Hagberg up, and he's going to lead us in a time that's focused on that. Well, Matt's been very clear about essentially the characteristics of good leadership in the church, whether it's the chief pastor, whether it's the elders, whether it's those that serve in variety of means in the church. One of the uh, key priorities that the apostles set for themselves was devote themselves to prayer. And as elders, we would ask you to commit ourselves as a congregation to the issue of prayer, specifically this month in regard to the need for a youth and family pastor. This is an identified need. It's one we've seen very clearly in our church. And serving on the committee, it has been a long and very difficult process. Um, it's hard to wait on God. It's hard to know what the timing is. It's hard to know whether we're doing the right thing by what the, what the um, description we've set forward. But the elders feel very, very strongly that we are in the right place in seeking God's leadership in this particular role. I would ask as we pray that you would focus on particularly not only preparing the person that God has for this role for our church, but also wisdom for the committee as we sit and examine the characteristics of people that have come before us, that we would recognize someone that is full of the Spirit, someone that has wisdom, somebody that is called to this particular ministry, because that's the key characteristic, that God has called them to this place at this time for this kind of a ministry. And we'd ask you to commit during this month, particularly, um, sometime each week, that you would focus on that particular need for our church, that God would prepare an individual, and that God prepare us to receive them, to minister to them as they minister to us. So would you bow um, with me in prayer, and let me lead us congregationally in this particular um, privilege and task. God, we come before you as a church in need. We come before you as a church on our knees. And we would ask for your wisdom, for your guidance, and for your leadership. Particularly, we would ask that you would prepare the man that we need so desperately in this particular role. We pray that you would guide them in their thinking, 
We pray that you'd make the call very clear. And we pray that as we examine the people that come before us, that you would give us wisdom and give us a sense of um, your spirit uh, in, in the movement of the individual and the movement of our church to join together, to put this um, in place for our youth particularly, but for our families in the church. Thank you for your grace. We depend on it. And we would pray for your grace to be exhibited very clearly in this particular ministry as we pray, as we continue on the process. And we would beg your indulgence in bringing this to bear as quickly as possible. Thank you for the gift of your son. That's what makes all this possible. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, as we close today, I would encourage you to be in prayer for those things, uh, to pray that God would lead us. Thank you to those that have served on that committee. They are faithful. They are prayerful, and they are committed to that. On your way out, uh, don't forget that uh, we collect our benevolence offering on those Sundays where we celebrate communion together. That offering goes to meet uh, the physical and material needs of those in our body and in our community as we're able to. Stick around here or come back within, I don't know, 10 minutes or so so that we can hear from the Edwards on what they're doing. And if you do have to go, come back for lunch here. Uh, I'd love for you to get to meet them and so that we can hear their heart in ministry. If there's a way that we can be praying for you, don't just fill that out in the comment, the connection cards. We would love to have that. But we have people that are ready to pray with you even now. Uh, the prayer room will be open immediately following service over here off to my left. Uh, we would love to pray with you, to pray alongside you for whatever the need might be. Joy, sorrow, maybe you don't even have the words to express it. We would love to come alongside you in those things. Uh, thank you for your faithfulness uh, as a body. Uh, thank you for your faithfulness in prayer and your commitment to one another. And I pray that that marks us as we move forward. God bless you. You're dismissed.